Well, let me add my welcome to all of you, to all that has already been said. Uh, what a tremendous joy and privilege it is to have you back. We missed you all summer, and we hope you had a great summer. We hope the Lord blessed. Uh, I was grateful to God for what he accomplished in my life through this summer, uh, ministry in South Africa and ministry in England over in Europe for a while. I don't know if all of you are aware of it, probably most of you, if not all of you are, but uh, had another uh, interesting thing happen to me this summer. My wife had an automobile accident and broke her neck, and uh, by God's goodness and God's grace, she is recovering. Uh, it's altered our life significantly uh, by um, changing my role. I'm now waiting on her after 29 years of her waiting on me. So it's a wonderful time for me to pay back all those years of service. Yesterday we celebrated our 29th anniversary, 29 years of marriage. Hardly seems possible. We celebrated it by her sleeping all day and me eating at Carl's Jr. It's an unforgettable day. It reminded me of our 25th anniversary where I was in the fetal position lying among the lizards in India with some kind of dysentery. So the anniversaries aren't always what you expect them to be, but 95% um, of the people who break their neck have permanent paralysis and she has none. We're very grateful for that. She could have died of swelling of the brain. The Lord was gracious in regard to that and she is wearing a steel halo suspending her head contraction with four posts that hold it up she's she's able to walk but she has this huge cage on and uh, it's really quite interesting to look at I asked her if she's receiving television stations through all of her antenna <laughs> our grandchildren threatened to hang things all over this uh, at Christmas we're expecting to put lights on it that'll flash you know she, but it uh, it holds her neck in a position that allows the the broken vertebrae to heal and uh, so we appreciate the fact that God has been gracious and spared her life and and uh, as far as we can tell she'll be able to fully function there's still one arm that doesn't work but it seems to be showing signs of recovery and uh, Melinda our daughter was also in the accident whom you know she was here last year for her first year uh, was in the same accident the car rolled into a ditch and tumbled and rolled several times and totally pancaked and uh, all she got out of it was a gash in the side of her head, which I don't think you'll be able to find because it's been stitched up. And and my wife, uh, as far as they can tell, they've given her tests and uh, they, they tested her for her memory to see if she could remember everything because often when you take a severe blow to the head and the roof crushed her head, broke her face, broke her jaw, broke her shoulder, and broke her neck, so it was a crushing blow. They wanted to make sure that... Uh, she still had her memory completely intact, and they gave her batteries of tests to find out how her memory was. And uh, when it was all said and done, I told them that there's only one thing that she doesn't remember really fully well, and that is what a wonderful husband the Lord uh, has given to her. It seems, it seems to have diminished a little bit, and, uh, but we're going to work on it. We're, we're going to try to bring that back to where it used to be. Um, we're, we're just rejoicing in the Lord's goodness in sparing her life. And I'm looking forward to a great year grateful that we can share the beginning of this year together in chapel and come to the Lord's table. A couple of Sundays ago, I think the first Sunday that um, our freshmen and our, our new students, uh, transfer students, were with us, we, we had a special message at Grace Church on 
the whole matter of what is your relationship to Christ like. Aside from all of the sort of religious activities you're involved in, the spiritual exercises that you you carry on as a routine and the activities that you engage in in your church and whatever here at school, what is the character of your personal relationship with Christ? Where do you stand today with Christ? That's the real issue. And I think that's the issue you face when you come to the Lord's table, when you come to the communion table like this. Because it is obvious that when you remember the death of Jesus Christ, when you commune with Jesus Christ in the bread and the cup, you are forced, I think, to face the condition of your relationship. In 2 Corinthians 13:5, the Apostle Paul said, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Take a look at your life and see if your salvation is real. See if it's genuine. And Paul also said, before you come to this table, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's a time then for self-examination. It's a time to look at my life and for you to look at your life. And as we begin this year, take stock of the condition of our relationship to the Lord. There's so much that takes place at the Lord's table, and I want to kind of run you through just a little brief understanding of it, if I might. If you have your Bible with you, you might want to open to 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, and I'll be referring to several scriptures here, uh, bouncing back and forth in these two great chapters that focus on the Lord's table. I know you've been in church many, many times, and you've participated in communion services, but I... I would venture to say you probably haven't really sat down and thought out the significance of what you do in its fullest sense. So let me see if I can't help you to do that. I'm going to give you seven things that take place at the Lord's table. Seven things that take place at the Lord's table. First of all, it is here that we remember Christ's saving work on the cross. Look at chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. Paul says, remembering that night in which Jesus initiated the table, Paul says, in the same way he took the cup, that is, Jesus took the cup, after that last supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Now that clearly tells us that we do this to remember the death of Christ. We remember that Jesus died for our sins. We remember that He offered Himself as the substitution for our execution. We should have died, but He died in our place. We remember that in His death He delivered us from sin. In His death He conquered Satan. In His death He conquered sin for us. And so the Lord's table then is a time for remembering. It's a time to look back and focus again on the reality of what Christ did for you and for me. And it leads to two things, I think. One is thankfulness and the other is humility. Thankfulness because apart from what he did, we would die in our sins. And as Jesus said, we, w we would never be able to be with God. We would die in our sins, he said to the Jews, and you will go to a place other than the place where I dwell. So we have to be thankful that he died for our sins, and that 
obviously goes without saying. Secondly, I think it leads to humility. If I, if I look at my own worthiness, if I look at what I deserve, I deserve hell and I deserve judgment and I deserve damnation and I deserve to bear my own sins. But Christ took my place and bore my sins even though I'm unworthy. And so there's a combination of thanks and humility that comes when I look back and remember Jesus Christ dying on the cross for me. Thankful that he did it. Thankful that even though I was unworthy, he did it on my behalf. There's a second thing that happens at the Lord's table. And that is we see the common life, the common partaking of Christ's presence. Back in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, it's a very interesting verse. And it points this truth to us. Verse 16. Paul says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Now, he's saying something very interesting here. He is saying that when we come to the Lord's table and take the cup, there's a sense in which taking that cup is a sharing in the blood of Christ. When we take the bread, there's a sense in which we are sharing in the body of Christ. What does he mean here? What he means is that we are commonly partaking of the very real presence of Christ. Now, obviously, the Catholic Church got a little carried away with this thought, and they came up with what has historically been known as transubstantiation, in which the priest is able to take the, the wine or the juice and the bread and, and sort of miraculously transform it into the literal blood and the literal flesh of Christ. And so they say when you take the Mass, you're taking in Christ, literally drinking His blood, literally eating His flesh. Well, the Reformers didn't like that. And when the Reformation came, Martin Luther and others came up with a different interpretation, not wanting to have people eating the real flesh and drinking the real blood. They came up with a new view called consubstantiation, which basically said... It isn't the real physical flesh and blood. It is the spiritual flesh and the spiritual blood. There is a real partaking of a spiritual substance. Well, both of those were, I think, in error. I think all the Apostle Paul is trying to say is this, that when you come to the Lord's table, you are in a very real sense fellowshipping with His presence. He is there. He is here. As we come to His table, we commune with Him, the real Christ. We commune with Him in a spiritual sense. He is gathered among His people. He is here with us. And our response to this then should be one of total devotion. It should be one of single-mindedness. If you back up from verse 16 in chapter 10 to verse 14, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In other words, when you come to the Lord's table and you realize you're communing with Him alone, make sure you have no allegiance to any other deity. What was so unacceptable to God in the Corinthian church was that these Corinthians who had supposedly come to Christ out of paganism, would go to the church and they would celebrate the Lord's table and then they would go back to the pagan temple and in the pagan temple they would engage in eating meat offered to an idol or they would engage in, in the worship of what amounted to a demon impersonating some pagan deity 
And the Apostle Paul is saying you cannot do both of those things. You cannot commune with Christ and also commune with demons. That is unacceptable. You must make the break. Look at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Do you wish to provoke the Lord to jealousy because you think you're stronger than He is? In other words, are you going to provoke the Lord to anger believing that you can withstand what He will do in His anger against such hypocrisy? So when you come to the Lord's table, you are in effect saying, I want to commune with a living Christ singularly and only, fleeing from all other false gods, all other points of worship. I devote myself only to the true God, the true Christ. In verse 20, he reminded them that the Gentiles or the pagans sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Any other god, any other idol is, is merely a false god with a demon impersonating the god that really isn't there. And so he says that there is a certain single-mindedness in the Lord's table. I'm turning my back on everything else to worship Christ and Him alone. Total devotion. This then becomes a point at which I reiterate my total commitment to Christ. There's a third component in the Lord's table, and you, you see it in chapter 10, verse 17. We not only commune with Christ here in a single-minded way, but we commune with each other. Look at verse 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, just pulling out of that the single thought, you capture this idea. We all are members of one body. We all share in one bread. And what it's saying is that we commune as one. So the Lord's table then, in a sense, flattens us all to the same level. We all come to the foot of the cross. We have all been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We all share oneness in the body of Christ. We all possess the common eternal life. What is our response to that? Well, it should be a, a celebration of our unity, which means loving each other, forgiving one another, seeking peace with one another, enjoying true fellowship with one another, ministering to one another. So the Lord's table, then, is a reminder of the death of Christ, which leads to personal thanks and humility. The Lord's table is a reminder of the common communion with the living Christ, which leads us to a recommitment of our lives to Him as the singular focus of life for us. And then thirdly, it is a reminder that we are one in Christ, all of us. And it should be another time for us to rehearse in our own minds our unity in Christ. It's a good time to remember that if you hold something against your brother, you better go to your brother and forgive and make it right before you come to this table. If you have ought against your brother, you better settle that before you come to the Lord's table because this is a reminder of our unity. We are all sinners equally in need of a cross and a Savior. We all come at the foot of the same cross, sharing the same eternal life, the same forgiveness. We are one in Christ, and that calls us to unity. It's a time for us 
to examine our own heart. If, if you hold anything against another believer, you need to resolve it at this place before you come and take the element. We are all sinners at the foot of the same cross in need of the same Savior sharing the same common eternal life. It's a time to remember our fellowship together. There's a fourth component, and that is that when we come to the cross, to the Lord's table, we worship in the holiest fashion. We worship in the holiest fashion. Because this is the table of the Lord, it is, in a very real sense, what we could call the, the new covenant holy of holies. Coming here would be tantamount to an Old Testament high priest going into the holy of holies to the very mercy seat, as it were, to commune with the living God. The fact that the Apostle Paul says in verse 21, as I read you, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons is a reminder that you can't deal with something that is sinful and then turn right around and deal with something that is absolutely holy. Later on in the chapter, he castigates the Corinthians because of the way they treated the Lord's table. They came together for the feast and they were drunken and they were gluttonous. It was really a mockery. And because of the way they treated it, some of them were weak and some of them were sick and some of them even died. So it's a reminder that, that when you come to Christ and when you come into His presence, you worship in the very holiest place. It's a reminder of the call to purity. It's a reminder, reminder of the call to holiness. Very obvious point. Following that up with a fifth thought, and that would move us over into chapter 11, and it really connects with that fourth one. It's at this table that we confess our sins. It's at this table that we purify our hearts. Look down there to the more familiar part of this section, verse 28. I mentioned it earlier. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The point is, when you come to the Lord's table, that is the holiest place. That is the, the, the only real altar that you have in the New Testament. That's the holy place. You're communing with the presence of Christ. And so when you come, he says, examine yourself. Do an inventory. Look at your life before you eat the bread and drink the cup. What are you looking for in your life? Well, first of all, you're looking to see if you're a Christian. Are you a real Christian? Have you really committed your life to Christ? Is He Lord of your life? Is your life obviously different than it was? Has the transformation of redemption taken place? Not only have you been justified, that is, declared righteous before God, but have you begun the process of being sanctified, separated from sin? Can you see a difference in your life? Are you dealing with sin in your life? Do you love Christ, hate sin, long to obey God? Do you have a desire for the Word? Those are evidences of salvation. Examine yourself. To see, as 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, whether you're in the faith. Secondly, you need to examine yourself to see, though you're a Christian, if your life is pure. Is there sin in your life? That doesn't mean, have you ever committed a sin? Of course, we all do that. But are there sins in your life which you do not confess? 
sins of which you do not repent, sins which you want to maintain and cultivate. You don't confess them to God because you don't want them eliminated. You enjoy them. Is there an attitude in your life towards someone else that isn't right and you're holding on to it and you're feeding it? Is there, is there a sin in your life that you continue to enjoy and from which you will not turn? Is there a sinful relationship in your life? Is there a certain kind of spiritual apathy or lethargy or indifference in your life? Is there a failure to be faithful to the Lord in the study of His Word and prayer? Faithful to worship Him with your whole heart? Whatever it might be, if there's sin in your life, you need to see it. Let the Spirit of God reveal it in that self-examination process. And then in verse 29, he explains why this is so important. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't judge the body rightly. That's a pretty strong statement. The word judgment in the Greek tense is not the, in the Greek language, is not the, that most uh, dramatic and authoritative sort of final note of judgment, but a word that could mean examination, evaluation. He's not saying that if you eat and drink and you have sin in your life, God's going to damn you to hell, but there are going to be some results because of your sinfulness. If you don't judge yourself rightly, some take it that the body there means your own personal body in which sin finds its resonant place. Some think body means within the fellowship itself. I kind of lean toward the individual aspect because the individual is the one doing the self-examination. So as you look at your life and you see that in your flesh dwells sin, if you allow that sin to have its place there, and you don't judge rightly the sin that is in you, you are bringing upon yourself God's chastening. So, as you come to the Lord's table then, it is a place of remembrance. It is a place of communion with the living Christ. It is a place of fellowship with the rest of the saints. It is the holiest place which, bring, which brings us again to the recognition that we are entering in to a place of purity, and that leads us to the fifth point, a time for us to confess our sins, a time for repentance as well, a turning, not just a confession. There's a sixth component here, and that is that the Lord's table is a place where we proclaim Christ's salvation. We proclaim Christ's salvation. If you look at verse 30 for a moment, Paul says, If you don't judge yourself, verse 29, the Lord will judge you at the Lord's table. And he says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we wouldn't be judged. Well, what he says there is some of you have diseases. Some of you have severe diseases, you are sick. Some of you are weak, that would be maybe one level of illness. Some of you are sick, that might be another level, and some of you are even dead because you have come to the Lord's table and you haven't dealt with your sin. If you would only judge yourself, you wouldn't need to be judged. Now, an unbeliever in that kind of group would say, boy, what kind of a God do you have? 
What kind of a God do you have that kills people if they foul up the ceremony? But that is just the point. We have a God who's very serious about sin. And the Lord's table is, a, is an evangelistic opportunity. It shows how serious God is in dealing with sin. Do you know God is so serious about sin that He may even take the life of a Christian who continues in sin, who desecrates His table? He wants unbelieving people to know that. He wants unbelieving people to understand that He is serious about sin and that there's a very clear message to them. If the Lord may take the life of one who is His own who sins, what do you think He's going to do to one who's not His own? God is serious about sin. So in the Lord's table, the whole concept of confession, as unbelievers sit and watch the church do that, should ring true to their hearts the fact that God is very serious about sin. But there's another aspect of this sort of evangelistic message. Look at verse 26 of chapter 11. He says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There is a very clear statement made in the Lord's table about the seriousness of sin, and there's a very clear statement made in the Lord's table about the provision of salvation. When we take the bread, we are symbolizing the body of Christ given for us. When we drink the, the cup, we are symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. And we are proclaiming that Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice for sin. So on the one hand, in the seriousness of self-examination and even chastening, we are acknowledging that man is a sinner and God has a serious view of sin, even to the degree that he punishes and even maybe takes the life of Christians who continue in sin to say nothing of what he'll do to non-Christians, but at the same time, he is a Savior who wants to deliver us from sin. So there is a proclamation aspect in this table. And then one final seventh feature of the Lord's table that I think is a wonderful one, and we have to turn to Matthew 26 for this. Paul didn't repeat this. Jesus in Matthew 26, instituting his table, says in verse 29, Matthew 26, 29, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The seventh feature of the Lord's table is it anticipates the kingdom. It anticipates the kingdom. Someday, when Jesus returns and sets up His earthly kingdom, He says, I'll do this with you again. Jesus was there at the first Lord's table, and He hasn't been at one since, except in His spiritual presence. But in His real, glorified, resurrected, returning person, He will join with the saints in the kingdom to partake of this table. So there is a sense of anticipation here. As we do this, we can anticipate that in the future we will do it with Christ in His own kingdom. Summing up, this is a time of remembrance. 
This is a time to look back at the cross and be thankful and humble because of what Christ has done. This is a time of, of communion. This is a time when we come together in the very presence of Jesus Christ, His flesh, His blood, His presence. He is here. And it's a time to rehearse and reiterate and refresh our total devotion to Him. It's a time of fellowship. It's a time when we as common Christians come together to share our common eternal life and remember that we're one in Christ. It's a time of worship because we come into the holy place to adore the Holy One. It's a time of confession and repentance. We examine our hearts and confess our sin. It's a time of proclamation as we show the world how serious God is about sin and how graciously He has provided salvation. And it's a time of anticipation as we contemplate the day in the future when we'll do it with Jesus Christ. So much is here, and that reminds us of the sacredness of this wonderful, wonderful time. If you happen to have your Bible open to Matthew 26 and you look at verse 30, something went on at the Lord's table that I've always taken very personally and seriously. And it tells us that after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. A component of the Lord's table that can't be forgotten is singing. There's a place at the Lord's table for songs. And so as we share in the Lord's table together this morning, I, I want us to do it and to do it in the way that the disciples did it, and that is with song. But before we begin that part, I want you to bow in a time of prayer, and I want us to share in some moments of self-examination, and then we're going to sing, and then we're going to share in the table itself. Let's pray. Our Father, I come to you on behalf of all of us to confess our sins. Father, we have failed to do what we ought to have done. We have come short of your perfect will. We have usurped your authority in our lives and we have ruled. We have determined for ourselves what we would do by our own will rather than yours. We have been dilatory in our prayers. We have been lazy in our devotion to the disciplines of study and we have allowed thoughts and words that did not please you. We have done things, Lord, that were not to your glory. We have left things undone that would have brought you praise. We have failed to minister to those in need. We have spent our, our thoughts and our our money and our time on things that gave us pleasure and were selfish rather than things that would meet the needs of others and were unselfish. We have been proud and not humble. We have looked on our own things and not the things of others. We have considered our own things more important than others. We have not demonstrated the mind of Christ who willingly gave up everything and took the role of a servant. We have cultivated, Lord, 
even in the relationships around us, selfishness. Lord, there's no end to the ways in which we fail You. We have not used our spiritual gift faithfully and as fully as we should. We have made promises to You and to others we did not keep. We have followed the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We have failed to obey Your statutes and Your commandments. We have listened to the tempter instead of Your voice. We have had rebellion in our hearts. Lord, we have failed to look back and remember the cross with thanksgiving, knowing our unworthiness. We come now asking that You would give us a new vision of the cross, that we might have a thankful heart and not sin, that ugly sin of ingratitude. We ask that You would help us to know we even now in this very moment are communing with the living Christ who is here with us. And may we renew our devotion and our commitment to Him. Would You forgive us for offenses against one another and call us back to a pure fellowship? Would You remind us that we come at this moment to the holiest place of all, that is to Your presence, And would you remind us of how high the priority of holiness has been set by the words, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Would you accept the confession of our sins and purify our hearts? Would you give us the privilege again of proclaiming the great salvation and even anticipating the day in which we will share this very table with our Lord Jesus? Make this a special time, Lord, as we come before You. Cleanse us of every sin that we might be worthy to partake of this, Your table. In Christ's name, Amen. We're going to sing some songs that I know are familiar to you as the men come to pass the bread. We'll begin singing and ask them to come as they will right now. Melinda told me that uh, Patricia made her own breakfast this morning for the first time. I'm sure she was in fear again that I might feed her something that I had prepared, which would be a fate worse than death. So there is a little bit of progress, and we're grateful for all of the little indications that uh, she is progressing. It's awfully hard without her fully functioning because she's obviously in charge of so many important things in our little family's life. Thank you for your prayers. And I am so excited about the beginning of our year. I'm blessed to be able to speak to you and and to begin to know some of you and to get acquainted with you. And uh, I just believe God is going to give us the greatest year we've ever had. We're all here by divine appointment. The Lord has brought us together for just such a time as this. And And we want to draw out of it everything that He intends for us to have. So we're going to be praying for you that God will make this the best year of your life.
Let's go back to First uh, Timothy again and continue our discussion of what it means to be a true child in the faith. A true child in the faith. Sometime back I wrote a, a letter, somewhat of a long letter. I don't usually write long letters. I have too many letters to answer, but once in a while I write a long letter. And I wrote a long letter sometime back to a rather prominent man, a, a great man in Christian ministry. The reason I wrote it was because this man was so sorrowful, he was so hurt, so wounded about the drift that had occurred in a great Christian organization. Here was a man who had given his life to a certain Christian organization, poured himself into that organization to keep it strong, to keep it true to the Word of God. And as soon as he moved away from it, it had become ineffective and weak and compromising. In writing the letter to him, I shared the fact that very few great ministries survived the death of the original visionary man of God who gave those ministries life and energy. Very few Christian organizations or ministries survived the death of the man who, who was the dramatic driving force very few ministries survive the tremendous influence of unusually gifted people of God. Usually what happens is a series of compromises. I suppose um, I haven't had that experience like some because I've stayed in the same church for my whole ministry and never having left, I have never had to live to see what happens when I leave. But I did watch my father pastor a number of churches and watched the frequent sadness of his heart as he, having poured himself into a church for many years, would leave and go somewhere else and look back in sometimes a matter of a brief few years to see the disintegration of that ministry. Lest you think that that happens to men who perhaps aren't as noble as others, I would simply remind you that that was the experience of the Apostle Paul, who himself was used by God to found the seven churches that we see in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which churches started on a process of defection not long after Paul himself had left. One of those churches was Ephesus. Paul, having spent three years there, gave them the best that, that he had. He failed not to teach them the whole counsel of God, he says in Acts 20. In fact, he gave them everything that he had in terms of truth that God had revealed to him. He taught them not only publicly but from house to house. That is, he was not only disseminating the truth in public meetings, but he was going door to door and applying the Word of God and the truth of God to individual lives and families. He was zealous, probably beyond all men. He was equipped with nothing but the truth, never teaching any error, because his sermons were basically founded on revelation from God, which is without error. So Ephesus had the very best. Paul went into prison, his first imprisonment, and while he was in prison, the church at Ephesus began to defect. Bad leadership came in, false shepherds, false teachers, men who lived immorally rather than godly lives. The church began to abandon sound doctrine and even began to turn away from moral living. When Paul came out of his first imprisonment, he was deeply concerned about what he had heard about this church at Ephesus, which he loved so profoundly. And so he 
got a hold of Timothy and he said, Timothy, I want you to meet me in Ephesus. And so coming out of prison, he went to Ephesus and there he met Timothy and he saw what was going on in the church. And he said, Timothy, I can't stay here. I've got to go west. I've got to take care of some other things that God has put into my heart, but I want you to stay and fix this. So he wrote to Timothy these two letters after he had left him there. Having been gone maybe only a few weeks, he writes back 1 Timothy, and a little while later he writes back 2 Timothy to tell Timothy what he expects him to do because he hears that it isn't very easy. That sets the scene for the letter that we're looking at called 1 Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus. It's a tough place to be. Why? Because he's a stranger. Because he's young. In fact, Paul said to him, let no man despise your youth. Don't let anybody look down on you just because you're only in your mid-30s. Make sure you check your own life, do a little spiritual inventory and flee youthful lust. Make sure you're true to the faith. Stay firm, stay strong, because you're the next generation of leader that that church needs. Here was Paul trying to hold on to the character and quality of this church by putting it in the hands of another man. We can't be certain exactly what effect Timothy had, but we do know that about 30 years after Timothy had been there, the church at Ephesus, according to Revelation 2, had left its first love and was on a slide. And it seems to reinforce the idea that a ministry is only as good as the strength of the leader there or the leaders there. And very often when a very gifted and godly and strong leader leaves, there is a serious decline in that ministry's character. Paul didn't want that to happen in Ephesus, and so he put Timothy in there and said, keep it strong. And in so doing, he gives us a model for how you pass the baton, as we saw on Wednesday, to someone else to carry the burden, to run the race. That's really what the Christian life is all about. I spent some time with one of my sons last night, and the goal of my time with my son last night was to encourage him that the single most heartfelt concern that I had in my life for him was that he would take the baton of spiritual commitment from me and make sure he carried it and passed it on to his own children. That's what a father is to do. That's certainly what a mother is to do. That's what we are to do as Christians as we endeavor to reproduce ourselves and make spiritual children, producing disciples. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy. It's all about helping him to know what to do to keep that church in Ephesus strong. Timothy had to fight them their sins, their failures, their bad leadership, and he also had to fight himself because he had his own problems. He tended to be timid, as 2 Timothy 1 tells us. He tended to be overwhelmed by some of the error for which he didn't have a sound apologetic and couldn't argue toe-to-toe. He tended to be overwhelmed by the persecution that was coming against him, both inside the church and outside the church. He tended to be lonely because he was trying to set things right and it seemed as though everybody was working against him. So he had a lot of battlefronts, but nonetheless, Paul was concerned that he be faithful. And so Paul writes these letters to him to keep him strong. 
And they really teach us a lot about discipleship. I wish we had the time. In fact, we could if uh, the Lord ever allowed it. Offer a discipleship course here at the college. It would just take us through First and Second Timothy and fill out the full color portrait of what it is to, to make a disciple. But looking back at that little phrase in verse 2, let's pick it up again, chapter 1. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. This identif- identifies Timothy as a real disciple. Paul had really reproduced himself in this young man. As I noted for you last time, in 1 Corinthians 4:17, Paul said, I'm so concerned about you that I'm going to send Timothy who will bring you into remembrance of all my ways. He is a carbon copy. He is a rubber stamp. I also reminded you of Philippians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, again identifies Timothy and says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. There's no one like Timothy. He is to me, he says, like a child serving his father. That's really what we want to produce in this whole matter of discipleship, a true child in the faith. And I reiterate again what I said on Wednesday, that the greatest joy you'll ever have in your life as a Christian is to see someone following in your path in the way of Christ. It's a wonderful thing to be able to say to someone, be followers of me as I am of Jesus Christ. I'm following Christ. You follow me, and you'll follow Christ as well. That's a high calling. So Timothy was a true replica of Paul. He was a living example and model of the genuine founder, as it were, of of the Christian faith in the Gentile world. We noted that there were five. We're going to give you five characteristics of a true child of the faith. And these are the things that you need to be working on in your own life and reproducing in the lives of those you disciple. Number one is saving faith, and I don't want to spend time reviewing it. I just want to remind you that last time we said one of the things that marked out Timothy as a genuine child in the faith was that he had a true saving faith. He was a real Christian. Churches are filled today with people who are not Christian. It was probably 15 years ago that Billy Graham made the statement, the greatest evangelistic field in America is the church. There's no question about that in my mind. Churches are literally packed with people who do not know Christ. That is true even in my church. I am continually amazed at the people who all of a sudden out of the blue, having been there for years, announce that they have just become Christians. To say nothing of churches where the Word of God is not taught and where the gospel is emasculated and presented as a form of easy believism. But Timothy had genuine saving faith, and we noted that. Now, I want to go on to a second mark or a second characteristic of a genuine child in the faith, a real disciple, and that is this. He is marked not only by saving faith, but by continuing obedience but by continuing obedience. Recently, had the occasion to speak to a lady whose husband had died. And she said to me, oh, you know, it's really wonderful because he's finally out of his pain and he's in heaven with the Lord. This was a phone conversation, and at that point, I was glad that she couldn't see the expression on my face. 
I said to her, you believe that he's with the Lord? Oh, yes, she said. I remember the night he went forward, some, yea, 50 years before. The man died, total alcoholic, and had been for years, evil, disinterested in the church, disinterested in the scriptures, disinterested in Jesus Christ, gave no regard to anything that was precious to true believers, and yet she believed he was in heaven. The true child of the faith is known by a pattern of continuing obedience. There were some people in the church at Ephesus who didn't demonstrate this. Go down to verse 18 in chapter 1. This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping the faith and the good conscience, which some have rejected. There are some people who at some time stuck their hand in the air in the church at Ephesus or prayed a prayer or said they were Christians, but they didn't keep the faith. They did not maintain a good conscience. What is a good conscience? A good conscience is a conscience that doesn't accuse you. The reason it doesn't accuse you is because it doesn't have anything to accuse you of. You're dealing with sin in your life. You're walking in obedience. But these people rejected the faith and they rejected the good conscience. They suffered shipwreck, and then he names them, at least two of them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and I have delivered them to Satan that they may be taught not to blaspheme. There are some people who look like they have a good start, but they shipwreck their lives before they ever reach the harbor by a violent and deliberate rejection, and the Greek terms here mean that, a violent and deliberate rejection and repudiation of the faith. As opposed, opposed to holding on to the truth, holding on, retaining sound words, and we'll see more about that, they apostatize, they defect, they reject willfully God's truth in favor of blasphemous and satanic lies. This was a, a somewhat common problem. I believe Hymenaeus and Alexander were probably two of the pastors or former pastors in that church who had rejected the faith, and they were at the highest level of leadership. Go into chapter 2, and you can see some others who apparently were rejecting the truth of God. You see uh, women in verse 9 who are told to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with plaited, literally, hair. That's hair woven with pearls and gold and costly garments. What that tells me is there were women who were showing off when the church got together by wearing their fortune on their head. They were dressing immodestly and indiscreetly and parading themselves for obviously sexual and materialistic purposes. They were not characterized by good works as befits women who make a claim to godliness. There were some who at one point in time made a claim to godliness, but they were not continuing in a path of obedience. And it goes on to say in verse 15 that they should be delivered from the stigma of leading the race into sin, as in the case of Eve, through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. That could apply to the children, but also could apply to the women who are to maintain their faith and continue in it and continue in love and continue in sanctity or holiness with a certain amount of self-restraint or self-discipline. So here you had defecting leaders 
you had defecting women from the pattern that God had established for them. Go down to chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And we noted that last time. This simply reminds us there will be other defectors. People literally who will fall away from the faith. They will make some pretense. They are like the rocky soil and the, the seed goes in and some, something sort of pops up but it dies. Or they're like the, the weedy ground where the seed goes in and it's choked out by the love of the world or the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So there were some people who were led astray by deceitful spirits propagating demonic theology through the mouths of hypocritical liars. And then in chapter 6, we find some other defectors in this church at Ephesus and certainly elsewhere. In verse 9, he says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. Leaders defecting from the faith because they will not maintain the faith and a good conscience. Women defecting from the faith because they want to live in an indiscreet, immodest, and self-indulgent way. Others defecting from the faith because they are deluded and duped by seducing spirits. Others defecting from the faith because they love money and all that money can buy and thus they wander away. Intellectual pride, discontent with God's design, sexual desire, lust for money, all kinds of things cause people to defect from the faith. But true children in the faith have a pattern of continued obedience. In 1 John 2.19, John tells us these very important words. He says, speaking of some defectors, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. When you see someone who makes a profession of faith in Christ, but does not have a pattern of continuing obedience, you are looking at a defector who went away and demonstrated that he never belonged in the first place or she never belonged in the first place. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you are my mathetes alethos. That means a real disciple. A real disciple. Timothy was a real one. Timothy was not like the defectors. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 2, it says about Timothy that he was well spoken of by the brethren. In chapter 4, for example, of 1 Timothy, you, you get a glimpse of Timothy's character in verse 6. He says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you, Timothy, will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine, then this, which you have been, what? Following. 
You can look at Timothy's life and you will see a pattern of continuing obedience. You have been following that. That's the pattern of your life. Timothy's obedience, Timothy's perseverance was enough to demonstrate that he was a true child of the faith. Let me take you to a third principle, a third mark, as it were, of true children in the faith, humble service, saving faith, continuing obedience, and humble service. Salvation always leads to service. Service is simply a, a form of obedience. Dedicated stewardship of life to the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ, which is what salvation involves, will lead one to serve the Lord. Jesus said to his disciples upon calling them, follow me. Didn't he not, did he not say that? He didn't say believe in me. He said follow me. And he said follow me and I will make you into something. What? fishers of men. Follow me and I will produce in you a life of effective ministry. Follow me and I'll make you into a servant. That is an inevitable consequence of true salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9 is one of the great verses describing true conversion. And it says about the Thessalonians, you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You turned to God from idols with the purpose of serving. For that service, the Lord has given us spiritual gifts. For that service, the Lord has mandated us to go into all the world and make disciples. Now, there are some people who will claim to be Christians, but they apparently have no interest in serving the Lord. They have no commitment to service. Apparently in the church at Ephesus, there were those kinds of people. Chapter 3, verse 6, talks about people who become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. In other words, those are recent converts who swell up with pride and will be condemned for pride like Satan was condemned for pride in other words, they look at coming to Christ not as a path to humility and humble service, but as something to exalt themselves. In chapter 5, again, it is possible even for people in leadership to be engaged in sinning rather than serving. In verse 19, he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may fear or be fearful of sinning. Don't you lay hands, verse 22, on anybody too fast. So you be careful how you choose leaders because some of them will have a pattern of sinning rather than a pattern of serving the flock. In chapter 6, verse 4, we're introduced to conceited people who are in the church. They don't understand anything. They just want to get into controversy and disputes about words. And their attitudes are envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion. They create constant friction. They are of depraved mind, deprived of the truth. They think godliness should make them rich 
and on and on he goes about talking with uh, talking about these people who are proud, who offer no humble service, who are swollen with their own sense of self-importance, who are pompous ignoramuses who want merely to argue. They are corrupt and they are money-hungry. They're in the church. John talks about a Diotrephes who is there not because he wants to serve, but because he loves to have the preeminence. The church has people like that. They're there to become wealthy or they're there to gain for themselves some prestige or some elevation in the mind and the eyes of others. They're there to be highly esteemed by people. They have no interest in serving. But a true child in the faith, a true disciple, is one who becomes a servant. And I really believe that that was the case with Timothy. I believe that it was the pattern in the life of Timothy to be a servant. That is inherent in Paul even leaving him there. He left him there, and he willingly stayed to serve Paul and to serve the Lord. He took commands very well. In verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul urged him. In verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul entrusted him and commanded him. And in chapter 4, Paul commands him in verse 11. He commands him all through that section. He tells him in verse 14, don't neglect your gift. In verse 15, take pains with these things. In verse 16, pay close attention. He continually gives Timothy orders. And Timothy does not chafe and he does not negatively react because he has the heart of a servant. In chapter 6, verse 20, he says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. You've been given a servanthood. You've been given a stewardship. Romans 16, 21 Paul calls Timothy my fellow worker, my humble servant, the one who willingly comes alongside to render service. So those who are true children in the faith are servants. And it is not always easy. Just a reminder in 2 Timothy, I mentioned it earlier, it got so hard for Timothy in verse 8, 2 Timothy 1, that Paul says to him, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. When it comes hard and heavy, when the persecution from outside the church is heavy, when the Ephesian errorists with their sophisticated philosophy bombard you and you can't answer it, when inside the church the ungodly leaders are attacking your integrity and credibility, when you're feeling the heat inside, outside, and the suffering is more than you can bear, just remember me and remember what I have suffered in prison, because when Paul writes this, he is in prison. In just the few weeks since his departure from Timothy, he has been incarcerated again and for the last time, and he says, Timothy, when it gets tough, you continue humble service and remember, I'm in prison for what I'm doing. This is part of being a faithful servant. A faithful servant will pay whatever price to discharge his servitude. Back in Acts chapter 20, Paul really set, I think, the standard, at least for me, when he said this, I do not consider my life of any account, verse 24, as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received 
from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. My life is not an issue. I am expendable for the sake of the service to which I am called. Fourth mark of a true child in the faith is sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. True Christians are going to hold to sound doctrine. True disciples are going to follow the path of sound teaching. Now, obviously, there were some in Ephesus who did not. Again, that church had people who were not true children in the faith. Verse 4 of chapter 1, again, I remind you, there were some there. He says in verse 3, teaching strange doctrines, myths, endless genealogies, giving rise to speculation. In verse 7, people who wanted to be teachers of the law and didn't know what they were talking about. Verse 20, those who had blasphemed and needed to be taught not to blaspheme. Chapter 4, verse 7, some of them teaching worldly fables that were fit only for old women. That was, by the way, a sort of a, an epithet that was used among philosophers when they wanted to discredit what some other philosopher said. They would say, ah, that's nothing fit for anybody but a senile old woman. So all the way through, we, we obviously are aware that people were teaching unsound doctrine. Chapter 6, verse 3, he says to Timothy, if anybody advocates a different doctrine and doesn't agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. So here you have people teaching myths, unsound doctrine, endless genealogies, wrong interpretations of the law, people doting over questions that had no value, teaching doctrines other than what Christ taught that led to lasciviousness rather than godliness. Over in chapter 6, verse 20, he calls their teaching worldly empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. So that was in the church. And I just warn you that it will always be around the church. Unsound doctrine because Satan fights back with error. Myths, long lists of ancestors, godless legends not worth telling, misinterpretations of the law, speculations about nothing of value, opposing godliness and truth was rampant. Mindless heresies, Christless legends. And so Paul says, Timothy, my true child in the faith, I know you are committed to sound doctrine. He would have to have been, because in verse 3 he says, you have to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. You couldn't instruct other people unless you knew the truth. Over in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, he says to him, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. And the next verse, verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. That's truth. Scripture. Hold on to it. You have been taught the truth. You believe the truth. You have been following the truth. Don't let go of it. Hold on to it. Again, a true child in the faith is one who affirms sound doctrine. He reminds Timothy in chapter 4, verse 11, to command and teach sound doctrine. Verse 16, to hold on and persevere in sound doctrine. In chapter two, at the end of the verse, chapter six, rather, verse two, at the end of the verse, teach and preach these principles—the principles of truth. 
Well, the true child of the faith, again, is marked out as one who is committed to sound doctrine. Timothy is told in verse 11 of chapter 6, You man of God, follow righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness, and then this, fight the good fight of faith. What does that mean? Battle for the true faith. Battle for the true faith. How do you know then when you produce a true disciple? How do you know when you have a true child? Saving faith, continued obedience, humble service, sound doctrine. That's what you're trying to see reproduced in the life of another disciple. And then there is a final one. Let's call it courageous conviction. Courageous conviction. Spiritual growth and the discipling process should end up in producing a strong person. That's not popular today, by the way. It's popular to be a compromiser today. It's popular to vacillate. It's popular to say, well, we just want to love everybody and we don't want to make any waves. It's popular to say, well, this is a very time, a time for people to feel good about themselves and to boost their self-esteem and to have a sense of self-respect. And if we go around attacking what they believe, you know, we're going to make them feel bad. It's not a time for uncompromising stand on truth. It's, it's not a time for courageous conviction. It's a time to be relevant. And as I said in seminary chapel yesterday, to be relevant to our world is to be irrelevant to God. We need people with a spirit of no compromise. And that's what is so important to Paul. Again, in the church at Ephesus, they were into compromise big time. They were compromising. Men had compromised the role of men. And in chapter 2, he reminds them that men have a role of, of pursuing holiness in the church. Women had compromised the role of women. And instead of bringing up children and raising them to be a godly generation, and instead of caring about carrying themselves about in humility, submission, and modesty, they had overstepped their bounds. In chapter 5, we learn, verse 6, that she who, lives, who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. There were women in the church who were literally giving themselves over to wanton pleasure. Chapter 5, verse 11, he says, I, I want you to refuse to put any younger widows on the church list. That's a support list where you pay their their needs because their husbands are dead. Don't put younger widows on the list because when they feel sensual desires, the need for cohabitation, they will disregard Christ. They want to get married. They will incur condemnation. They'll set aside their previous pledge. What is he talking about? Well, there are women who make vows and then when their passion gets excited, they violate those vows. They say, no, my husband died I'll serve the Lord and I'll serve the church. Put me on the list, support me. And then they get the, the passions for some guy. And the implication here is he's most likely an unbeliever. And they lustfully engage in a, in a relationship that ends up in marriage and they disgrace the church. So he says, you tell those younger women that they need to get married as soon as their husband dies or soon after that because that's going to keep them pure and that's going to give them the guidance spiritually they need. Don't have them taking vows they can't keep and then operating on passion. Tell them, verse 14, to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. If they try to live celibate lives, 
they're going to get into lustful relationships that are going to end up in bad marriages. Don't let them get to the point where they start to function on their lust. You lead them to someone who can marry them in Christ. That's the implication of all of that. So there were women in the church who were not faithful. They were not holding the courage of their convictions. They were making vows they couldn't keep, and they were compromising. There were people, as I noted in chapter 6, verse 10, who were compromising over money. People who were compromising over false doctrine. In fact, in chapter two, uh, chapter 3, rather, verse 15, he says, Timothy, I'm writing this whole deal so that you can know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. I'm teaching you how to live in the church. And that means dealing with all these myriad of compromises. The leaders had compromised, and he has to tell them the qualifications of an elder. The deacons had compromised, and he has to remind them about the qualifications for a deacon. The congregation, the men had compromised, the women had compromised, the younger women had compromised. And all this compromise was not consistent with being a true child of the faith, but Timothy, he didn't compromise. Paul is saying to him, I want you to hold on to the things that you've always held on to. I don't want you to neglect your spiritual gift. I want you to grow spiritually. I want you to preach the word. I want you to be faithful. I want you to guard the treasure. I want you to be a defender of the faith who fights the good fight of faith to the end. It's a good footnote, by the way. The best we could tell, Timothy died in about 97 A.D. Tradition tells us that he was killed as a martyr because he was opposing the vile perversion of idolatry, sexual idolatry, connected with the cult of Diana of the Ephesians. He had the courage of his convictions right to the end. He had what chapter 3, verse 13 calls a high standing and great confidence in the faith. Young people, let me just kind of sum this up in a minute. We should be all about reproducing ourselves. And what is it that we want to reproduce in the lives of others, which obviously has to be true in our own life first? Saving faith, continuing obedience, humble service, sound teaching, and courageous conviction. From a spiritual standpoint, we would like to accomplish that in your life here. We'd like to be sure that your faith is saving faith. We'd like to be certain that you are living a life of continued obedience to Christ. We would like to believe that you are committed to a humble service, that you are committed to sound teaching, and that you have the courage of your convictions to stand in the midst of error and sin. We would like to raise up generation after generation of such spiritual children. But you're a part of that process, necessarily. You're a part of that process day in, day out, day in, day out, as you influence the lives of those around you. Father, we thank you this morning for this wonderful insight into Timothy that you've given us in these letters. And we pray, O oh God, that we might be faithful to be a part of accomplishing this kind of discipleship in the lives of others. Bring them to us and make us the kind of people who are marked by these five characteristics and thus can pour them into the life of others. We'll give you all the glory and thankful that we can have any part in accomplishing your purpose for Christ's sake. 